everyone and welcome to episode 39 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'm your host as always and today I'm bringing you an episode on the 1981 uprisings or race riots as they are often known when we look back in history. Now I personally think this is one of the hardest episodes I've ever had to research or talk about partly because I at this point as I am recording don't know how to structure it. I feel like there are so many little bits of information, even when just thinking about the causes of the uprisings, to consider that to be able to kind of structure it all in a coherent podcast might be beyond me. So I'm just going to say, bear with me, please. Um, I think it will all make sense in the end. Maybe you'll have to listen twice. Maybe, Maybe it will be one of those episodes you have to take notes Or you might need to do some extra reading afterwards because I'm just going to let you know everything that I know and hopefully it makes sense. That's probably not the best way to start a podcast, but I'm being very honest with you. Also, my new aim for today's podcasts and podcasts moving forwards, I think I want to shorten them a little bit. I think I started them when I first started the first ever episode at around 25 to 30 minutes. And I think I want to get back to those times because... You know, people lead busy lifestyles and to listen to me for an hour a week is is pushing it a little bit. I know some of you really like longer episodes and I have considered that, I think. But I think for now, I'm going to reduce the time a little bit. So if you feel like you're not getting as much detail as maybe you did in the past, I am sorry. Please let me know. Send me a message, tweet me, DM me, Insta message me. Uh, if you feel very strongly about this but I think for now we will drop the episode time down you see all of this waffling maybe they actually could be shorter and I just need to stop giving an introduction that's about five minutes long anyway let us get into the episode and let's think about these riots uprisings probably going to refer to them as riots because I feel like it's a better phrase and also because it perfectly segues my first little clip of today from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. Thank you, Dr. Martin Luther King. I could not have said it any better, so I used his voice. Now, the riot is the language of the unheard. It's a very simple and clear quote, so obviously I won't bore you with what it means, apart from the obvious, that people that are absolutely fed up and at their wits' end will turn to rioting when they feel like there is nothing else to lose and they have no other option because they are not being heard. Their problems, their plight, their cries are going unheard and I think that is exactly what was happening in Britain at that time with black people and Asian people because we're going to look at some examples where it's not just black people and also white people too. One thing I will say with most of the uprisings in the various cities we will look at, it was never just black people taking to the streets. And I think we often think they were because of the way they were reported. The over-policing of black people means that when there is a crime, they turn to black people. Don't get me wrong, black people were probably there protesting in their majority 
because of the racial element of this, these protests and racial discrimination and all the kind of triggers in that regard. However, black people were not the only people rioting. And when we get to the cities in the north of the country, looking at Liverpool, looking at Leeds, we will see quite clearly um, a more even split of black and white people protesting at this time and rioting and uprising and overthrowing, you know, police on the streets as far as they could. And I think that's something important to note. I think at this juncture, it will probably mention class. Working class people are most likely to have been rioters. Um, and that is a common thread and a common theme when we look at protests and uprisings in this country following on from 1981. 2011, I think it was LSE um, that did a study on, you know, the profile of a lot of people that were in the riots in 2011. And I think it was about 56% of rioters came from uh, like underprivileged backgrounds from probably the lowest 20% I believe of households in the country you know if you have nothing to lose in terms of you don't have a job you might not have a good income you might not have a stable home or um, you know things of that nature then this might be the only way you can be heard because you can't make a stand in the workplace you can't make a stand you know with a kind of financial backing behind you because you don't have that and so the class element is very important and I read sections of Ron Ramdin's The Making of the Black Working Class in Britain for this um, podcast episode because I think it's really important to think about class and he does a fantastic job of analysing that and I'll be using his analysis um, a lot in my work and also Peter Fryer's Staying Power. I think I mentioned this book every episode. You should take a shot when I say Peter Fryer's Staying Power because I think it's every episode it comes up. And he, coming from a socialist background as well, focuses a lot on class in his analysis. His book was published in 1984, however, so the kind of longer lasting impact of the riots would not have been, you know, in his kind of analysis because he was kind of writing in the thick of it, essentially, because there were more protests, uprisings and riots in 1984 and 1985, different parts of the country. So, yeah. You know, this is a, an extended period of unrest and it didn't just start at Brixton, which is oftentimes the kind of catalyst. And it definitely was a catalyst in many ways because the riots that followed were very similar um, and they saw a, a similar level of destruction, whereas uh, the kind of protest surprises that came before that, maybe Coventry a bit earlier in 1981, Bristol in 1980 in St Paul's, the damages done and the kind of nature of them were very different not as as violent not as long lasting um, and not as taxing on on the council's budgets and the government's funding and police people their policing and, and that kind of thing so we'll get into those earlier um, uprisings I think first and then we will have a think about Brixton um, and then the cities that followed <laughs> I think at this juncture, it's very important to hear from a second speaker today. Um, one that I could not speak for. Uh, yes, I will just play her, her wonderful clip and you can take from that what you will. Ladies and gentlemen, former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. And you know, the British character 
has done so much for democracy, for law, and done so much throughout the world, that if there's any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in. So if you want good race relations, you've got to allay people's fears on numbers. That's one thing that's driving some people to the National Front. They don't agree with the objectives of the National Front, but they say that at least they're talking about some of the problems. Now, we, the big political parties, if we don't want people to go to extremes, and I don't, we ourselves must talk about this problem, and we must show that we're prepared to deal with it. Margaret, 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 Margaret. <laughs> now, you're probably thinking... Okay, Margaret Thatcher's talking about the immigration quote-unquote problem because at the moment Britain is quote-unquote swamped as if black and brown people are flies and wasps and we are swamping this Britain country that has invited us here in the 70s when she's speaking. I think she's speaking in 1978 or 79, just before she becomes prime minister. Um, and yeah, she's leader of the Conservative Party from 1975. So she's had time to really get into this immigration problem and really kind of go up against Labour. But it's really clear that they haven't really figured out this immigration quote unquote problem because you get to 1981, about two years into her reign as Prime Minister, and you've got riots, you know, spreading across the country. Anyway, her little note on the national front. Now, I just want to say white fear is one of the scariest types of fear because if white fear is so powerful that it sends a man or woman to join the national front so that they can start having conversations about race, eh? Margaret Thatcher just said, you know, I don't want them turning to extreme groups like the National Front. However, you know, I understand that they're the ones that are having the conversation and we as a big political party should be having the conversation. Sorry, I had to do it. I just don't understand. I do understand. Let's not get into why people are racist because, you know, we know this. It's, yeah irrational in many ways but completely rational in others because they're upholding a system that benefits them but then irrational because we're all human beings and how can you judge someone color of skin etc etc yep all of that now getting back to the point the political situation in britain is tense you've got your prime minister to be slash prime minister at the point of the riots saying things like this and she said similar and worse enoch powell who is stirring up this fear in his speeches, his little rivers of blood situation. And, you know, they're not the only ones. You've got situations up and down the country. You've got racist politicians. National Front membership is rocketing. People are joining in droves and they are marching. They are protesting, probably more than black people at this point. They just, they want their country back. They want their jobs back. They want their houses back. They want all of it back. And yeah, it's a problem. Tension is high. And this is just politically. We haven't even looked at, you know, socially. And we know that when we have a conservative government, poor people just get poorer and rich people seem to just get richer. So the working classes, the people that already had nothing to lose, really have even less to lose now. And then you've got this political climate as well. Now, things are hotting up, as you can imagine. The build up is insane and we haven't even got into policing yet. Oh, my word.
Now, just before I touch on policing, because I think policing and Brixton go hand in hand, um, but I'm not there yet in this story. I want to take it back a bit to to the 70s, the late 70s now. I'm thinking, why have we gone back here? Well, basically, I just want to point out that, you know, I've mentioned that riots, protests, uprisings were happening in Britain. And whilst none of them were as big and caused as much damage as Brixton, and that's why it's kind of remembered as the biggest one, and, you know, Brixton being, I would say, the centre and the capital for black people in Britain, it probably had the biggest population of black people in any part of, of the country, and also it was one of the most deprived areas of the country. And so you've got that depravity and, you know, the racial element going hand in hand, you know, we've already spoken about what that can do when people don't have anything to lose. Now, just kind of taking it back a bit and then we will move to London because I think it's important to note the protests and the kind of the mood at the time. It, it's not just, you know, one day something happened and then everybody decided to, to write and protest. This is decades and decades of tension. This is the tension of people, you know, feeling and understanding what their parents went through in the generation before in the 50s and 60s. That tension is extremely long-lasting and traumatic, and I think it's really easy to kind of think of things in isolation, but it's definitely not the case. And Peter Fryer, take another shot, in Staying Power, he says, After decades of police harassment, brutality and racist attacks from numerous far-right and fascist groups, as well as racist individuals, black and white youth, set Britain's inner city ablaze. And that is paraphrased. It's also on my Instagram for the History Hotline. Um, I posted it on there. Um, And also goes on to say, right through the 1970s, Britain's black communities had been under attack from fascists and the police. They had been forced to defend themselves since nobody else could or would defend them. The rebellion of black youth in the inner cities was a logical and is now clear inevitable response to racist attacks. It was the culmination of years of harassment. It was the culmination of years of harassment. And I think that is such a key point. It is not just an event in isolation. No, nothing in history is in isolation. We know this now. Every single episode on this podcast I've made has linked up somehow. Mangrove 9 episode, that trial was in 1971, 10 years before these riots. You cannot tell me they didn't have an impact. You cannot. All the things we've spoken about, 1919 Bristol riots, Liverpool, sorry. You know, that legacy, it lives on, it really does. Nothing is in isolation and I'm going to go through some of the things that people were protesting about in the late 1970s. So, Thatcher's Nationality Bill, strong feelings of resistance, particularly among black women in the late 1970s, coming from OAD. We've got an episode on OAD if you want to know more about them. This is one of the things that they're protesting. At this point, they're also protesting issues such as households, children's welfare, childcare, Deepa Provera, which was that contraceptive drug that they were dishing out to black people that was actually stopping them from having children for a very long time, and forever in some cases. Abortion laws, black prisoners' rights. 1979, the Brixton Black Women's Group um, set up the first Black Women's Centre and Asian women also joined um, the campaigns uh, initiated by the United Black Women's Action Group. So you've got women protesting a lot more uh, and more notably. 
Then you've also got, in 1979, um, under the leadership of a group called IWA and Blacks Against State Harassment, they have a first national demonstration. Um, black youths kind of remain the real target because, again, as I've said, they've been deprived, they're defenseless and disorientated. They've also, you know, most susceptible to sus laws. And sus laws is something we're going to talk about in so much more detail when we come to the policing section. But in short, stop and search. It's the granddad of stop and search. Basically, it's the same thing with a different face, um, disproportionately affecting black people, uh, often, you know, known under more sinister and disgusting, um, you know, titles, which I, I won't go into. Maybe I'll go into them shortly, uh, but not for right now. The mood is not there. Um, also, you know, at this time, we have Bristol. And it's important to talk about Bristol. I think Bristol must be a fantastic city. I've only ever been there once. But when we think about Bristol in 2020, tearing down statues, you know, Bristol clearly are not here to take anyone's nonsense because the history is there. Now, in 1980, the Bristol riots occurred in April, April 2nd, um, and it was kind of seen against this background of, of a riot, um, but it was kind of a time of heightened racial tension, police harassment, um, and, you know, the black community kind of feeling absolutely frustrated and fed up and overwhelmed by this harassment, um, and increasing state authoritarianism, in the words of Ron Ramdin, which is an interesting concept, something to, to read more about, I would say. Um, there's a very large presence in Britain at this time, and especially in Bristol, um, and so, you know, this kind of rebellion explodes in Bristol in, in 1980, um, this was, it made it onto the TV, you know, it was television pictures, the violence was very clear and it informed the public, it was, you know, huge news, black people had been ignored for so long, but at this point, nobody could ignore them, you know, front cover on newspapers, you know, headline news uh, on the TV, um, and it was known as the Bristol riot, as I've said, um, you know, headlines from the newspapers were sometimes quite unsavoury. Ron Ramden notes some of them. 19 police hurt in black riots. Why is it a black riot? Yeah, because black people were rioting. Obviously, you've got to remind everybody that it was black people, which in a way is good because, you know, black people were rioting for a reason. But then it wasn't good because did, you know, British society listen to that reason? Take note, change? Absolutely not. Um... Obviously, you know, the damage done to the police and the injuries on the police were a clear focal point um, because policing in Britain at that time and even now it's still such a well-respected profession in, in certain circles and within certain demographics. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the fact that these black people who people already thought did not deserve to be in the country were work shy, feckless, didn't want to do anything, didn't want to earn money, just wanted to collect benefits um, and were loose and, you know, into criminality and all of those negative stereotypes you can think of. And I am literally quoting different sources that I've read over this past weekend. So it's all fresh in my mind. Um, yeah, you know, that was the kind of negative stereotypes surrounding black people at that time and so nobody was probably you know going to take the side of, of a black person against a police officer essentially is the point there. The riots in Bristol actually started after a raid on a black owned cafe in Bristol 
very similar to the Mangrove 9 situation, but the Mangrove 9 was, you know, a peaceful protest and the police kind of turned that. Anyway, maybe they had the Mangrove 9 in the back of their mind and thought, forget peace. Um, and, you know, in the words of Martin Luther King, they said, the right is the language of the unheard. Today we march. Um, and so, yeah, um, it escalated very quickly. Uh, there were about a 1,000 rioters. I believe 25 um, people were injured. You know, black people would have been, if kind of got into it with a police officer, kicked to the ground. They wouldn't have had maybe the weapons that the police had. They didn't have maybe the, um, not necessarily the numbers, but the kind of training of, of how to fight and restrain a human being. Um, and so, you know, black people were not just going out there and throwing a few stones and running home, you know, they were getting into it. They were being beaten up in the streets by police, given as much as they got, but it was not necessarily something that, you know, black people kind of just going in willy-nilly. Like You actually had to really think, was it worth it? And the fact that it was just shows how dire the situation must have been, I think. One of the reasons that Bristol didn't kind of develop into a Brixton situation is because the police actually retreated from the St Paul's area um, in order to cool down the situation and avoid further confrontation, and they are in quote marks. And I think that was very important. Brixton, you know, the London Metropolitan Police take a shot every time I give them some criticism. They don't know how to do that, clearly. They go harder. They antagonise further. They fight back. (laughs) So you can imagine why the outcomes were different. Moving on, fast forwarding then to, to 1981 now, we did an episode on the New Cross Massacre. 13 young children killed in a fire that at the time was believed to be done by arsonists, potentially, or motivated by race, you know, but the police are playing it off. Fleet Street, very little mention of it. It leads to Black People's Day of Action, protests that happened in January or February, I can't remember, in 1981. But that is the precursor of of Bristol, of Brixton, my apologies. Um, And also Coventry. Now... We have to remember that it's not just London that's the centre of, of all this, although it plays a very important part. Um, but yeah, we've had Bristol in 1980. 1981, we've started, we've already had a New Cross massacre. Um, and there was just a string of racist attacks. And there was not a point in British history, I'd say, from the 1950s onwards, where there wasn't a string of racist attacks. But I don't know, maybe when they happened so thick and fast, just like in the case of 2020 when it was like, I think Ahmed Aubrey, he wasn't killed by the police, but he was um, shot jogging home um, by some man and his son or his brother, I can't remember. Um, And then George Floyd seemed to happen so soon afterwards or we were made aware of them so soon afterwards. It just feels like it's kind of endless and just overly consuming because it's all you're thinking about. And I think it was a similar time if we want to compare in 1981 because you've had you've got the death of a man called cartoon um his alias campbell in brixton prison in march 1980 which was a high profile case you got the murder of akhtar ali Beg in newham in july 1980 obviously the new cross massacre 13 young uh, west indian children die in 1981 this is distressing you know that is the first few months of the year and that's already the kind of mood let alone the political tension, the economic situation of individual people. And we still haven't mentioned policing. Now, let's talk about 
Coventry very quickly. And I think Coventry is important because of many reasons, actually, um, some linking to music and all sorts. So in 1981, actually, um, an Asian teenager, a young boy called Satnam Singh Gill, was murdered in the precinct in broad daylight in Coventry. Um, another horrific attack and another death of, of a black or brown person in Britain. Um, but Coventry didn't, you know, turn to riots. Um, they actually um, organised a concert. So the specials, uh, who were a two-tone group, um, which is like a reworking of Jamaican ska and like punk rock. Um, and it's really common. It kind of, the second wave of it comes out of Coventry, actually. Um, and it is a musical genre that doesn't really have a race in a way. Like, obviously, it's come out of Jamaica, so black people are involved. But also white people that come from like that punk rock kind of scene and mixed race people who who might have struggled to find identity within you know either side of black or white people um this kind of two-tone music is is kind of home to that um you've got the specials the selector the beat they all kind of embraced scar they added lyrics um and also kind of were very like anti-establishment especially anti-thatcher and they addressed like pressing issues facing young people especially um i think if you were a young person in the 80s um and an anti-racist these were the groups for you especially if you were from the midlands um because you know this was a group coming out of coventry um and so the specials actually organized a group um a concert sorry for unity in response to the murder um and the kind of growing racism and tension in the city at the time so so what do you think the national front did they announced that they would hold a counter demonstration in coventry you just can't catch a break with these people imagine a man has been murdered a young teenage boy right and you know you're gonna have a concert a con not a protest not a riot not an uprising a concert a musical concert and the national front have to have a counter demonstration okay well guess what happened it turned into a riot Shock horror. So the extreme right National Front then met by a large crowd when they tried to get off a bus um, to wave their Union Jacks around and start their little protest. Um, now, the beauty about Coventry is that obviously an Asian man had died. And, you know, sometimes in today's society, it's like when something happens to a certain group of people, that group of people are like, oh, why aren't you supporting us? Um, you know, it's, it's been the case with, with things recently. Um, however, you know, that kind of call wasn't necessarily needed because black people were already on board following, you know, artists like the specials and just because there was unity in Coventry. Um, and so, you know, black people were, you know, going to that concert. Of course, Asian people were to support um, and to kind of mourn the loss of, of one of their community. Um, and so at this moment, there is unity between black people and Asian people. But it's just to rise up against the National Front and the racist white people. And so, you know, this kind of turns into a riot and a bit of a fight and a battle um, and it is uh, obviously shut down and it's not as big as Brixton but I think it's very notable. It's also notable for the music and it's why I've mentioned the specials because their single Ghost Town, it's like this town, it's coming like a ghost town, that song I'm not going to sing anymore and I'm not going to put it in because copyright. Um, they actually release their single, that single, at the same time as a Unity gig and it perfectly summarises this summer. It's like the perfect piece of foreshadowing. You know, the English student in me is so excited because they release this song and it sums up the mood of the people to a T because, 
only a few months later. Brixton toxeth up in flames in July and it's top of the charts. What a feeling. Art truly imitates. Without further ado, let us now talk about Brixton and policing because I feel like I've been building up to it this whole episode. Now, Ron Ramdin, who we've been using a lot in this episode in his um, text, The Making of the Black Working Class in Britain, he says that the Tinder was there. And by the Tinder, he means all those events that we've spoken about, the Deptford New Cross Massacre um, and that demonstration that followed, clashes with the police in Deptford, Thornton Heath in June, two separate occasions in July in Southall, and then the spark was lit because a tinder only needs a spark, and that spark was Brixton. Friday, the 10th of April, 1981. Now, for this part of the podcast, um, there's a really good actual podcast episode. I know I shouldn't plug other podcasts, but it's from The Guardian. Um, and it actually has people that were, you know, part of the riots, uprisings, uh, whichever you feel more comfortable or feel makes more sense to call. Um, and Alex Wheatle is one of them. And he had an actual episode on the Small Axe series. Um, one of them was about him and the riots. So if you haven't watched that, definitely watch that. It wasn't my favourite episode, which I said in the last episode of this podcast. However, still has merit, still is necessary. Definitely have a watch of that if you haven't already. Um, and the actual real Alex uh, Wheel was talking um, in this podcast and some other people as well that were there. You know, this was only 1981. Like, my parents were well alive, <laughs> living their lives, you know, nearly adults at this point. Um, and my grandparents, the same. So it's not like it was a history of a long, long time ago. This is only 40 years ago. Um, I'm sure some of you listening were alive at that time. Um, may not remember it, but, you know, you might have remembered the, the moment, the political tensions or or the kind of situation and the, the aftermath. And so, as I said, Friday the 10th of April, um, it was noted that it was one of the first warm days of the year. I always feel like it's summertime that riots and protests happen. You're not really going to be protesting if it's like pouring with rain and it's like minus one degrees. So that rules out the winter months. It actually rules out 11 of the 12 months of the year in, in this country because it seems we only get sun for about two weeks across the whole year. Four if we're lucky. So a black man was stabbed in Brixton. And you might be thinking, oh, who stabbed him? I don't know. Um, it's not relevant to this story but what is relevant is that he was offered help by an officer now this speaks to me on how terrible the situation was when it came to policing in Brixton and across the country he runs away from the officer in fear fear of what that officer might do to him even though he's already stabbed and literally bleeding out people around him who then think the police are antagonizing him actually turn on the officer so it's a big misunderstanding in this case the police officer you know we don't know if he was actually trying to help although you would assume so although at the end of the day it's the london metropolitan police can we assume anything positive no offense um i will disclaim there are obviously great officers that are trying to do the work and make policing you know better but they have been tarred for me with a very 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 negative brush um and so as i've mentioned 
you know, the crowd that are kind of around, she's in a big crowd, they turn on the officer and actually start throwing bricks and bottles at him. And I think that just shows you how terrible and how high tension that situation was must be because, you know, that encounter with this man that's been stabbed and this police officer, the fact that it makes people want to bottle the officer, you know, what have they been doing in the past to make people feel that that is the only way to kind of release the feeling and the tension that they have. Anyway, fighting begins. There's rumours of police brutality and the fact that people jump on them so quickly shows how believable they are because rumours are only really rumours because a significant amount of people believe them. That is how rumours come into existence. If I spread a rumour saying that I was um, actually the Queen's mother. Nobody would believe me. That would never turn into a rumour because it's so ridiculous. But if you spread a rumour that the police are acting with extreme force and using brutality and harassment on black people in 1981, everyone's going to believe it. Guess why? Because it's very realistic and probable. And that's how rumours work. And so... You know, the police, instead of doing what they did in Bristol in order to quell the uprising that was about to happen and just move off, let the people cool off of their own accord. What do they do? They go in harder. They crack down. They push back. They rock the boat. And what do the black people of Brixton do back? They rock the police vans and cars and they throw bricks and they damage property and they set fire to police cars, police property, buildings, businesses and the battle commences. The battle goes on and on. The police actually struggle. You know, their vehicles are literally being turned upside down. I don't know if you've ever seen it um, where like, people push from both sides and topple a vehicle. Um... It starts at Neeson Road, goes all the way up to Relton Road, if you know the area. Um, a double-decker bus, I think, was overtaken by rioters um, and driven into the police line of people. Petrol bombs were thrown, pubs were damaged and set alight. Someone commented on that podcast that it looked like war. And I can only imagine the pictures I've posted on Instagram from the different cities that faced um, and dealt with rioting over that time period of 1981. Um, I posted an image. I'll post the same images on Twitter as well. Um, yeah, it was very clear what was happening here was just destruction and damage because people had nothing to lose. The cleanup was estimated somewhere between 7.5 million and 10 million. Different sources say different things. That is how much damage was done. Um, the unrest was serious and I will say whilst I've just kind of mentioned all the things that the protesters did and I've, I've said black people it was also white people as well from this lower working class um, kind of portion of society and also one protester noted that the police really did get their own back because if they caught you on your own you know you would be done for in the same way that if a police officer was caught on their own he would be done for um, and this protester noted that, you know, once I think it was about 200 people were arrested. Once you got to the station, it was even worse. You know, there were no cameras in police custody at that time, no cameras in cells, nothing like that. He said, all you could do, and I quote, was protect your privates and protect your face because you would be beaten up. You would be kicked in. And that was if you were caught on the streets, if you were arrested and taken 
um, in a van or you were taken to a um, a cell or you were charged, you know, you would be beaten up violently. And so it makes perfect sense to me as to why protesters and people um, that were kind of facing this and living with the realities of sus laws of police harassing them on a daily basis, arresting them for no reason, um, searching them, stopping them, humiliating them, embarrassing them, they decided that, you know, this was their chance to topple vans and throw petrol bombs and release their anger. For me personally, maybe I'm crazy for saying this, maybe I'm radical, it makes complete sense to me. I, I just don't see why... Obviously, it's not great to be doing a riot, damaging property... But in my mind, can I condemn this behaviour knowing what people would have lived with? It seems like a natural response to me. As Martin Luther King says, a riot is the language of the unheard. You know, when no one is listening to you. And it, it took a riot for the Scarman report to be written. And for, well, Britain didn't even really take note. But, you know, at least that piece of reporting was done. And it was noted down and, you know when we look back we can kind of see that piece of evidence of of an attempt even to kind of think about the situation although it wasn't thought about very well in my opinion because the government commissioned that inquiry and there was like oh no evidence of institutional racism just issues of disproportionate and indiscriminate use of stop and search and sus laws that was literally what they said so um yeah we can't get too excited about that report but you know it did occur policing i believe was the trigger um of these protests and uprisings and riots and i say that because you know not only did the police antagonize protesters during the actual um events but in the build-up of sus laws you know it's a terrible terrible time And essentially that forms a catalyst for, you know, the riots that we see that follow in Handsworth, in Southall, in Toxeth, in Mossside, in all these cities um, that follow on. And, you know, whilst this episode is not the one where we're going to finish talking about the riots, because I already said I didn't want it to be too long. um, But it's very clear that, you know, in the words of Ron Ramden, this Brixton was the spark um, that was needed to light that tinder um and i think it's important to come back and think about the aftermath properly but i think the monetary damage alone is enough the report that comes out and follows is also a good indicator um and i think that the legacy of rioting and and kind of remembering that which is something i spoke about in the last episode with montel um our special guest I just feel like how we remember riots um, is always kind of in a negative light. Oh, well, kind of wish it didn't happen, but it did. Let's take lessons from it. Well, I think we should go kind of a step beyond that and, and think about, you know, the reasons of the whys. Why do people riot and why is it the only way that, you know, people feel that they can be heard? And by understanding that, I think you give power to protesting and rioting and and uprising and rebelling against, you know, the kind of parameters of what's socially acceptable in society and by giving power to those people. um, And even though you might just think, oh, you know, it's a reaction of anger and it's super, uh, like, it lacks control in, in many ways, you know, that might be correct, but I think there is also power in that, especially when the stakes are so high, going up against a group of thugs such as the police. I feel like this episode definitely needs a part two and one will follow, I believe, um, to think about some of the other cities and the triggers. But I do want to kind of stress the point that there was a pattern in the other cities um, and whilst Brixton was a spark, as Ron Ramdin has said, 
you know, it's important to then look at the kind of flames, each flame, uh, and how they kind of led to that original tinder uh, being lit by this spark of Brixton. So I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope you've taken something from it, and I hope you have a great week. Please follow us on our socials, on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Uh, follow us on the podcast platform that you listen on, leave a review, rate us so that we can climb in the charts and more and more people can be educated about Black British history. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Goodbye.